0: Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The COVID-19 Crisis Working Group on Monetary and Financial Measures is urging Canada to recommit to getting our fiscal and monetary houses in order once COVID-19 has passed. This because Canada is emerging from the first wave of the pandemic with high levels of private and public debt. Working Group co-chair Mark Zellmer is also a former deputy superintendent at OSFI. He joined fellow group member and associate director at CD Howe, Jeremy Cronick. We began our conversation by asking Mark what he sees as the key fiscal anchors that will keep Canada's economy from floating adrift post-pandemic.
1: Well, the first anchor is the 2% inflation target. At this stage, there's no real fiscal anchors because, of course, the focus has been on keeping the economy going. So in that environment, and with our debt overhanging the country, both public and private debt, it is absolutely critical that... uh, we're able to give people comfort that uh, uh, the currency will be supported by that inflation target.
0: Jeremy, can you give us a sense as to where we are with public and private debt loads going into COVID-19?
2: Going into the crisis, uh, I think the, the largely prevailing view was that the private debt and our subnational debt, so, the, so certainly the provincial debt, uh, was in a worse situation than our federal level debt. Um, and obviously the federal government has the advantage of being able to, uh, use the printing press if I can use that expression. Uh, and obviously with, with the crisis, I mean, those, those metrics, uh, for private provincial and federal are all, uh, going to get worse. There's just no way around it. If you increase your deficit to GDP, your debt to GDP is going to go up. Um, and so, uh, you know, largely that's been for the right reasons you know, to deal with the the pandemic, as Mark mentioned, but certainly those uh, those traditional metrics or, or anchors, if you will, uh, will, will have taken a hit.
1: In the current environment of very low interest rates, those debts are relatively easy to carry. We're very blessed that interest rates are very low and well below the usual growth rate of the economy. The challenge though, is that uh, some point down the road, there's always a risk that interest rates could rise. And the problem is that interest rates will rise faster than the debt load can adjust. So the issue is not an immediate issue. The issue is more over the medium term that uh, you can't turn the debt super tanker around quite so nimbly to adjust if interest rates, for whatever reason, were to rise at a later date.
0: Can we get a sense or even predict at what point that becomes an issue? I think there's two
1: possible scenarios that one could envision down the road. One, if for some reason, as the economy recovers, if our debt loads generally uh, look like they're going to become structural in nature, not just a function of this pandemic, and if our situation looks worse than those of other countries, investors and markets generally, uh, whether domestic or foreign, could start to question the sustainability of those debts and Canada could be in a very uncomfortable spotlight. So that would be a scenario where you could see for whatever reason, an increase in risk premiums attached to Canadian dollar obligations. The other scenario where interest rates could potentially rise would be if for some reason uh, the pandemic has done damage to the supply side of the economy on a sustained basis, then we could start to see inflation pressures emerging faster than we might have otherwise expected.
0: But in the interim, the issue is more deflationary than inflationary. The immediate risks are clearly deflationary in nature, which is why
1: all of the actions that have been taken so far make perfect sense. The challenge will be in the recovery stage at some point in the next few years, uh, at what point do we start bumping up against capacity constraints in the economy that m- might have been damaged uh, through this
0: pandemic? Jeremy, I suppose it's important to point out um, how def... Deflation limits our ability to really provide additional stimulus.
2: I guess I think of it a, a little bit differently. So deflation has a has a couple uh, issues. One, uh, it makes the real cost of debt that much more expensive uh, for, for for debt holders for, for 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 borrowers. Excuse me. Uh, and the other one, of course, is the typical economics argument that once deflation takes hold, uh, in, you know, spending holds off because people keep waiting for prices to continue to fall. The second one is less of an issue in the moment. Uh, the first one is, is, I think, a bigger issue as debt becomes that much more expensive uh, when when deflation uh, takes hold. Does the
0: crisis working group have a sense that a second wave of the pandemic is inevitable across the country? Or is it the belief that we could see a second wave, but only in specific locations, uh, specific hotspots? Our specific working group is dealing with monetary and financial issues. We're not health experts, so
1: I don't feel qualified to give you
0: a, a medical opinion. <laughs> You're not a health. doctor and you don't play one on a podcast either. <laughs> no, so I kind of think we take what we get and
1: then we have to adjust accordingly.
0: With that in mind, though, uh, the, aren't the, the, the concerns here that a second economy-wide shutdown is inevitable if we don't get the health side of this equation under control, and therefore, we really need to have that as a as a plan. We need to be prepared be prepared for that possibility. If you step back and think for a second, why do we do the shutdown in the first place? And the
1: issue was that the rate of infection was moving so rapidly, there was a risk that the number of cases could swamp the health system's ability to cope, and therefore you're putting it in a horrible position of having to decide who lives and who dies. The shutdown was to make sure that the transmission rate was such that the health system could cope with it. That did buy us in time. And the question is using the time wisely to put in the proper testing procedures in place so that in the future we can manage this through testing and tracing, as opposed to having to resort to the draconian, shut the economy down. So if we do have future waves, I think the first priority obviously is to protect the most vulnerable people uh in a targeted fashion and hopefully being able to use uh testing and tracing to manage the transmission rate so that we don't have to do the uh, coma routine i think
2: part of why um we put this staged approach to reopening is so that if we have to deal with a second wave or even a third wave we can move in between stages so it's not an all-or-nothing approach Um, to, you know, to dealing with any any future waves. And I also think that, you know, Ottawa announced last week uh, that they're going to get involved uh, in the testing and tracing, you know, even more so than they have been, I think, to support the provinces that have perhaps lagged behind, including Ontario. Um, So I think that that was a a helpful announcement for thinking about the testing and tracing that's going to need to be done to avoid, as Mark says, the draconian uh, full shutdown. The numbers
0: suggest that the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area, and Hamilton, Ontario, are the two primary hotspots in Canada right now. When we talk about reopening the economy, getting that second wave, how do we engage in a targeted approach to ensure that regions that aren't affected don't get financially and economically impacted? The testing and tracing approach enables you to manage more pandemic more like
1: we did SARS back in 2003 I believe where we did not have to go through a full economy wide shutdown we were able to treat this as a more traditional public health uh, emergency and if we're able to rescale this pandemic into a more SARS-like environment yes Toronto and Hamilton might be affected but you don't necessarily have to put all of
2: Ontario or indeed all of Canada into a a lockdown situation if you do have solid testing and tracing in place then you can then you can also look to target the groups that are most vulnerable to this um you know a lot of what's happened in ontario and quebec have been around the long-term care facilities and outbreaks there but that's partly because they get infected through people who are asymptomatic uh, who visit them or otherwise But if you have the testing and tracing in place, hopefully you avoid those types of outbreaks uh, in the community, and therefore you're less likely to see them in in some of the more vulnerable populations.
0: The committee, meantime, had raised concerns about these temporary measures, these temporary programs taking on more permanence, and these one-off deficits that we're seeing become structural deficits.
1: Well, you read many articles in the newspaper about People suggesting, well, this, the emergency relief benefit is a great framework for having a uh, minimum income uh, framework in Canada. Or people arguing that uh, uh, we need to ramp up uh, uh, other forms of public services going forward, which is fine. They may, all of these things may be worthy really objectives in their own right. But the thing is, we need to finance them in some fashion. And... Uh, the presumption that one can just simply borrow uh, to pay for them on an ongoing basis in the future, I would argue is questionable given the state of public finances. I do think we there needs to be some restoration down the road of fiscal discipline and a plan to bring back those fiscal anchors that served us so well over the last... Uh, 20 odd years so too many stories are appearing about people saying well we were able to finance this so well therefore we can do x y and z in the same fashion
2: and to the discussion earlier right i mean if this does turn into structural deficits that fiscal anchor if it's debt to gdp which is what the liberals decided was the fiscal anchor when they took over Uh, if if it becomes structural, that ratio is going to go up and up and up. Even if the interest rates are low, it's still more money that's going to servicing your debt. And then you get into the issue of risk premiums and fiscal sustainability and inflation. You're going to run into some issues at some point.
0: One of the arguments that's been made is that we can look back to the Second World War as perhaps the closest to the type of emergency scenario in which we find ourselves today today and that the amount of money thrown at the economy during the Second World War and the, uh, the debt levels that went through the roof on a debt-to-GDP ratio uh, basis explicitly was quite remarkable, but they didn't do anything about it. They just let the economy grow its way out of that incredibly high debt-to-GDP ratio. What do you make of that thought when it comes to concerns about fiscal sustainability today?
1: No question. It was manageable coming out of the Second World War. There was also a much higher normal growth rate in the economy coming out of the Second World War. And there was a fair degree of inflation, both during the war, till they put in price and wage controls, and indeed in decades afterwards, especially from the mid-60s onwards. Those factors helped to bring it down. But if you do some basic arithmetic using, for example, the uh, note that Don Drummond put out recently, and let's assume for sake of argument that the economy maybe grows around something between three and a half and four percent assume even that you have a very small deficit on an ongoing basis of is either neutral to one percent you're talking 15 to 25 years before you actually get back to the debt to gdp ratio we had at the start of the pandemic the problem is pandemics are not purely one-off they do happen from time to time and if it's not pandemics there'll be other kind of shocks in the future so you do have to think about, uh, over what period of time are you going to bring this thing back, if only to restore the flexibility to deal with future shocks. The other thing to bear in mind is that in the post-war period, at least uh, uh, through the initial parts of it, there were capital controls and a great deal of constraints on financial system uh, that came effectively out of the Great Depression. So the ability of people to move money from country to country was extremely limited uh, for many years. We are in a different environment where there's, Canada has, is dependent on foreign capital and indeed has had a very liberal uh, movements of capital for many decades. So that requires that one investors have confidence in Canadian dollar obligations, because it's very easy for people in Canada to move their money abroad, to move to different currencies. And if we move into a world of digital currencies, that could become even more questionable. And secondly, as a country, we are dependent on foreign capital at the moment to finance our uh, deficits uh, collectively, both private and public. So yes, we will benefit from a tailwind, no question. But that tailwind is
2: not strong enough to bring it back into uh, uh, the starting point for many, many years. I might just reinforce the point about inflation, right? I mean, it wasn't a free lunch coming out of World War II. We had inflation for many, many years, uh, and we had a, a central bank that that uh, lost a lot of its independence uh, coming out of World War II. And, and you know, and, and not just in Canada. I mean, if you look what happened in the Fed, there was a lot of pressure in them to keep interest rates low, but that continued to stoke, uh, you know, high inflation and high inflation uh, disproportionately. Uh, hurts uh, lower to middle income people, right? And and who you know who have less capacity to deal with increases in prices. And so um, that type of an environment, I, I don't think is one we want to enter into uh, as we come out of a pandemic, which has probably also disproportionately hurt. Uh, lower to middle income class people.
0: As we get some reopening here, I I can only imagine that if we needed to describe it, it would be more of a W than a U or a V as far as an economic recovery is concerned. So growth will be sluggish. How do we ensure fiscal sustainability coming out on the other side of this?
1: When you have a hole, don't keep digging. So that means we will have to wind these emergency support measures back to some degree. That will be a good starting point to try to start down the road to fiscal sustainability. Secondly, you don't have to do it all in one year, but you should have a plan and whether that plan is five years or 10 years or whatever the number of years is, we should have a plan about how we're going to get back so that we can buy ourselves time to deal with a a potentially sluggish economy. And then thirdly, I think we are going to have to think about who's going to pay for this. And so that could mean some targeted uh, tax measures, And the obvious place to start are with uh, businesses uh, avoiding taxes like many digital enterprises. Secondly, higher income individuals that uh, maybe have benefited from having unique skills or who have lots of capital gains from having uh, done very well over the last uh, decade or so and who are in a a position to probably be able to help pay uh, the bill at this stage. Those are kind of places to start. And then down the road, we'll have to think about, uh, as the economy improves, whether there's a scope for uh, more spending restraint or um, more targeted tax increases.
0: Hang on, let's back up and start at the beginning there. Uh, it's, it sounded to me like you're suggesting it's time that we tax Netflix. Aren't these the guys who are keeping us sane during COVID-19?
1: They may very well be
0: keeping us sane. I'm running out of shows that I like, actually. But we can't do this
1: alone. If we're going to go down those kind of paths... We need to do that in conjunction with other countries because it's very easy for the Netflixes of the world to um, migrate offshore. Uh, and indeed it's very easy for our higher income individuals to manage their affairs to be uh, go offshore. So I think if we're gonna talk about tax increases down the road along those veins, we're gonna have to find a way to do this in conjunction with other major jurisdictions so that we don't do anything stupid that impairs our competitive position as a country.
0: Right. I guess the concern here is that if we tax in one jurisdiction, like Ontario, then you're just going to see people move to Alberta. And if we tax in Canada, you're just going to see people move
2: out of the country. Exactly. You know, we talked about it in the, in the communique, and I think it's crucially important. But I think there's also opportunities here for governments to think about uh, growth opportunities, right? I mean, yes, we, we are not going to be able to grow our way out of it like we did, let's say, after World War II. But there are plenty of opportunities uh, for us to think about areas to, you know, to to uh, for Canada to be more competitive and to take uh, the lead on, such as, I'll use a few examples on maybe one. Let's say where, where government could play a role. I mean, the infrastructure bank was set up, you know, when the Liberals uh, took power, and, and has not uh, funded as many projects as I think many people would hope, right? And so there's opportunities there. There's opportunities in the in the transition to a clean economy space. Uh, but there's even productivity—you know—areas that the C.D. Howe has touched on, areas to improve business investment. Business investment was sluggish coming into uh, the crisis, and had taken a hit compared to our OECD peers in the last five years. And so, you know, Bill Bill Robson writes a piece every year on on uh, you know weak business investment and in, in areas that Canada can be more competitive. And so, I think all those areas that we that we at C.D. Howe and others talk about those should be revisited and perhaps doubled down on uh, so that perhaps some of this can come through growth and less through the need to coordinate taxation, though that will be a big part of it as well.
1: And another aspect of that, which all of the excellent points that Jeremy's making, I think is we may need to reconsider our, our views on foreign investment because in recent years we've been living off of short-term uh, financing flows from abroad coming into the, uh, into the financial system to fund a lot of things as opposed to foreign direct investment. We're actually a supplier of foreign direct investment abroad, so we may need to think about what steps can we take to encourage more investment and to buy people from offshore.
0: Isn't that in contrast, though, to the idea that we do need to increase taxes to bring in greater revenue down the road and that would run the risk of pushing foreign investment in this country into other countries?
1: Hence why we need to do any tax measures in conjunction with other countries.
0: Let's come full circle here to where we stand now. I sort of hinted on the alphabet soup of a recovery. What is the, the expectation as far as that is concerned over the course of the summer and into the fall? And what does this mean in light of the idea that so many of us are unwilling to open our wallets until we've got the confidence that the economy is not only on the rebound, but well along the way to that recovery. And what does that savings on the part of the consumer mean for that W or V or U shaped recovery?
2: This is my personal view. I, I think that consumption is going to be slow until, it re, in reality, until we have either an incredibly strong testing and tracing in place or we have a vaccine. I, I don't think this is going to be uh, sort of a smooth uh, rebound where consumers are going to run out that when we start opening things up, at least you know, stores and things of that, restaurants and things of that nature. So I think we're going to have to, um, we're, we're going to have to think about, you know, sort of how we are going to deal uh, with slow consumption, which is a problem when when consumption is such a big part of GDP growth in normal times. Uh, so, but I think that's when we get into thinking about, you know, ways to un, unleash some of the investment uh, and things that government can actually control. Um, you know, I mentioned the infrastructure projects, but there's, you know, other things on the investment side where where perhaps they have a little bit more uh, room to to do things, right? Because if we think about GDP, consumption, investment, uh, net exports, government spending, I mean, I think there are things government has more control over if consumption is uh, a bit more sluggish, which I which I expect it will be until people feel more comfortable uh, going out. In, In past recoveries. We've usually relied on uh, household
1: borrowing especially to help fuel the recovery and keep things going. I think we're going to have to start facing the thought that uh, recoveries now and in the future should be borne in mind without the presumption that we're going to have to encourage people to borrow. I think we tapped out the borrowing as far as we can go. So at this stage, we need to start thinking about recoveries that don't rely on credit to fuel them.
0: That was the C.D. House Co-Chair of the Monetary and Financial Measures Working Group, Mark Zelmer, alongside Institute Associate Director, Jeremy Cronick. On June 1st, register for the Institute's webinar, Flipping the Switch, Connecting Electricity Pricing and Canadian Competitiveness, with Alex Greco of the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters, Kevin Dawson of the Alberta Electric System Operator, and Blake Schaefer of the Department of Economics and School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. And on June 11th, U.S. monetary policy in the age of COVID-19 with former Bank of Canada Governor and Institute Senior Fellow David Dodge and The Wall Street Journal's Greg Ipp. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay healthy.
1: You've been listening to the CD Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhowe.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.